0: Thank <music> you. We are celebrating a series of outstanding documentaries that were part of the San Francisco Green Film Festival in April. Brand new films that are making their way through film festivals and hopefully to movie theater near you right now. Today we are hearing a true tale of strength, courage and wisdom, a film called Four Wheel Bob. And it is the incredible story of a man in a wheelchair taking on the mountains. That is our focus in this hour, Four Wheel Bob, a true tale of strength, courage, and wisdom. Here today on Inorganic Conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helge Helberg. In this life, in this world, you would think that we've seen it all, that we will run out of ideas at one point, run out of stories, of goals, that our human capacity will basically exhaust itself, that all songs might be written one day. Well, clearly not so. We've come across this incredibly wonderful movie, as slow as a wheelchair and as deep as human inspiration can lead us, in this case, up the mountain and into the heart and soul of the viewer. It's called Four Wheel Bob, a true tale of strength, courage, and wisdom. Big shout out to India Ari, one of my favorite musicians, to inspire this title, a true tale of strength, courage, and wisdom. The film is produced in the San Francisco Bay Area, where the show is Produced as well, and it was nominated as one of the Bay Area's most important environmental film contributions this year. We're speaking with the filmmaker today, and with the star of the documentary Four Wheel Bob. All that and more coming up in just a minute here on An Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Helberg, and this show is brought to you by Bowman College, a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Become a nutrition consultant or a natural chef at one of their campuses or learn from home in a self-paced mentored distance learning program. For more information on a degree in holistic nutrition or culinary arts, bowmancollege.org. And Fry Vineyards, America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Award winning wines at frywine.com. That's F R E Y W I N E.com. Thank you also to Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables that has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. From grocery store to company cafeteria to caterers and personal chefs, anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at earlsorganic.com. We are back here to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Helberg, and we are talking with the filmmaker and the main character of the movie Four Wheel Bob, a new documentary that is making its way through film festivals and movie theaters, hopefully near you. A very sweet and very inspiring story of a man in a wheelchair climbing up the mountains. A true tale of strength, courage, and wisdom. And with me now are Tall Sklut, the director of Four Wheel Bob and the main character of the movie, Bob, Four Wheel Bob, Bob Coomber, lifelong outdoors man, both in the wider San Francisco Bay Area at home. Welcome, both of you gentlemen.
1: Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thanks
0: so much for making the time. I was saying in my intro that in this World of of stories and filmmaking and articles and all of the stuff we hear. You would think that really truly inspiring stories, even though they may never fully end, but that we've kind of seen it all at least variations. And I must say, out of everything that I've heard in my life, this is one of the most extraordinary things I've witnessed. And thank you both, you Bob, for being that determined, and for you Tal to put it into this beautiful uh, story, into this song of a documentary, to be witnessing it. Bob, I want to start with you. Can you tell us where you were in your life and what happened to your health that sets the frame for the film?
2: Oh, sure. Well, I guess the best place to start is that I'm a juvenile diabetic since I was about 19 years old. Mm -hmm. And as I acquired diabetes, I uh, lost the ability to do all kinds of things, to be as athletic as I used to be. And... I ended up breaking bones, one really catastrophic break in my left leg, and then seven is following it, and as soon as one would heal, I'd try to bear weight, and another would break, and after about the seventh one, the, the orthopedist said, you know what, maybe you should try a, a different way to get around, and my, that was my introduction to the wheelchair, but uh, diabetes wasn't managed very well back in the 70s, and there was this... It was a difficult luck, you know you couldn't test your blood sugar, you didn't have an insulin pump like as I do now. It was a real struggle to hold a job to to do much of anything really. I was tired all the time and wasting away and I guess the low point was going into a diabetic coma uh in nineteen eighty six and waking up and i'm I'm six two in height, but I weighed hundred and twenty one when they weighed me at the hospital, and that was when we had to. Really work on getting better.
0: So the di- diabetes is, is one condition, but you couldn't keep weight, right? You were keep losing weight and strength. How was exactly. how was that connected? What what is the connection there?
2: Well, it, it is an offshoot of having diabetes. The food you're eating isn't exactly what you should be eating necessarily, and as often as you should be, and, and trying to be the perfect diabetic, and in doing so, I just uh, I kept losing weight, and it was just impossible to do anything.
0: Yes, and but what you did preserve was your love for nature. You had grown up in, in a natural setting, and your parents had taken you into the mountains and into the wilderness, and that love was not lost, even though your, that, your yep. body weight was lost, but that passion for nature stuck with you.
2: That never left me. And there were days when all I could do was drive to a place and sit in the car and listen to the birds. And uh, that kind of helped me bit by bit, small piece by small piece, get back in shape again.
0: So literally you ended up in a wheelchair. And what were the first steps? You just went to a city park and and at least that love for nature inspiring you. But at first it was the normal uh, stroll with a wheelchair on a paved uh, surface. Then you went from there.
2: It's odd that you put it that way, your first steps. Well, of course there's no steps. You're rolling along. But I'm just being funny here. I kept getting outside and figuring that it didn't feel so bad to keep pushing. So as I kept pushing and the chair kept moving, I kept going farther and farther away and willing to try new things. Oh, here's a, a hill today going up to Cal State Hayward. I lived in Hayward at the time and started going up increment by increment up that hill long hill and eventually made it up there and then started turning to dirt and adapting both my chair and my, you know, you you know what you need to do. You know how hard you need to work to get your arms and shoulders and back in shape to be able to push up these things. So that's what I started doing.
0: Tal, how did you meet Bob and how did you hear about him that he literally takes the, you know, the less beaten path, even with a wheelchair, and that inspired you to maybe create a film about him?
1: Yeah, well, I first read about Bob uh, in a newspaper article, I think it was back in 2010, about him climbing local hills and regional parks. And something about that article just captured my imagination. I just thought, gosh, I want to meet this guy um, and and sort of hear his story. So I I really contacted him out of the blue and said, uh, can we meet for some coffee, which we did. And then we started uh, a series of hikes together. Um, I've been an avid hiker all my life, and so I can relate how, to, how simply being outdoors can uh, you know, really lift your spirit and connect to nature. I've always felt that. So it was uh, a real pleasure to, to sort of get out with Bob and uh, explore together. Bob also, in, in these early hikes, I learned a few interesting things about him. <laughs> you know, when he's out on the trail, he'll... He'll stop, Uh, he'll talk to a rock, he'll talk to a bird, he'll, he'll, whenever a dog comes along, he'll certainly stop and talk to the dog. And so I think Bob, in these early hikes, sort of opened my eyes, if you will, to even take a pause and look at nature and the outdoors in in ways I hadn't uh, appreciated up till then.
0: And it's fascinating how it all ties together here in Anaganic Conversation. We're speaking with the filmmaker, the director, Tal Skloot, and Bob Coomer, the character, the main character of Four Wheel Bob, a true tale of courage, strength, and wisdom here in Anaganic Conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. Tal, what you're saying, we just had a show a couple weeks ago where we talked about the impact of nature on our lives. And there are now studies out that we discussed that if people in hospital have a window to a park, they will recover faster than people who don't. And so the proof of nature on your brain, and this was a expert in brain chemistry, through you know, new studies and measurements really of brain waves, the impact of nature directly measurable now, not just experiential. In this case, Bob with you Being in nature as part of your recovery, even though you can't overcome diabetes, how much did that add back the quality of life? And when did you set out to do the real mountain?
2: I guess the first mountain I did was in 2007. On the third or fourth try, I went up California's third highest peak, which is 14,250 feet, the White Mountain. It took some doing. You, the, everything is a learning experience along the way. So, when the first year I went up, I tried to make it up back in a day, which was not going to work. <laughs> I, mean, I, I no longer I have a hiker's mentality, but not a hiker's speed anymore. So, I kept trying locally more difficult trails, practicing on them. Just mainly, not even I can't even say it's practice. It's just getting out there because the experience of being out sitting in the middle of the day under a canopy of oak trees and listening to everything that's going on around you is just so special and it's a perfect way to separate yourself from uh, telephones and electronic devices and things. So I, I did a lot of that, and it took a little time to get to where I wanted to be in terms of going up hills and gaining traction because you had to change things on the wheelchair to make that work. But every time I went out, I would learn something else about what I needed to do and started stretching limits and pushing things to see how far I could go. How far in a day on a dirt, the east side of Mount Diablo, say, in Walnut Creek, you know, and how, how far could I go and still get back for dinner at home? I,
1: I wanted to add something to that, yes, Bob. Is You know, as I started hiking with Bob on, on the various trails, even before Bob attempted Kearsarge Path, the Big Sierra Hike, what amazed me was I. I was in, he, he's very much a technical climber, almost like a rock climber would be, who has to navigate cracks as they're climbing a, a rock face, only he does it in a wheelchair on the ground. So um, it always fascinated me to watch how he would pick a trail, pick a path that had least resistance, careful not to get into any dangerous situation. So in that sense... I, I felt like I was uh, watching a real athlete, you know, at work here. Just fascinating to watch him navigate trails.
0: Bob, can you walk us through your fourteen thousand foot attempts? Like, what does that really look like in a in a wheelchair? When you watch the film, it is this incredible dissonance between the speed in which you move, which is. To be fair, super slow. You have to, at least up the hill. It's super slow, and yet this unbelievable determination that you have to do so. And so, as a viewer, you are you feel that disharmony inside of you, and you want to. I want to push you up the hill, of course, which is not the point. And yet you are still making it. So there's this this incredible strength and courage that you show that no matter what, no matter how big the boulder in front of you is, you'll find a way around it, above it, uh, to kick it out of the way. Can you walk us through what it is for you, like inch by inch, to make it up a hill or, or a real mountain?
2: Oh, sure. I wish I could describe it. The, the, the easiest <laughs> way to put it for a hiker is that once you've been a hiker up in this area, you're used to doing those 10-mile days, you know, getting into... Campground to campground as you are going through the Sierras or over the Sierras or just out and back somewhere instantly when you try it in a wheelchair you you know you're not going to do that if you do a mile a day you, when you're going up hill up a hill like Kearsarge pass you're really kicking it you're really going real well and it felt like you you know you slept well at night after a day like that you're going over rocks and pulling over rocks, but the main thing is you have a destination you have a You have an idea of where you want to be, and each obstacle comes with its own set of difficulties. Sometimes they're not as difficult as they may appear. As Tal said, I I tend to go to find low spots between rocks and things to get the wheels in and try to get traction by, you know, putting all my weight over the wheels or pulling over the wheels or getting out of the chair and lifting the chair over the obstacle and climbing back in. Those are just all things you learn along the way. There, there wasn't any book on this. There was nowhere to look it up like, yeah, how are you going to get across the stairs in a wheelchair? Well, let me, let me look this up. It wasn't there. Unless I write it, it probably won't be. You really have to evolve to be comfortable with speed. You're hmm. not going to go fast. So instead, I occupy myself sometimes with watching the deer make fun of me and laugh at me as they cross the path, as they did our last time up there Uh, in front of me, and they're looking at me like, oh, man, what are you doing out here? (laughs) And uh, and I have a lot of fun with animals and, and trees and everything out there. It's just so fascinating and such an upper to me that it's not hard to keep going because there's only more of it up ahead, and over every rise is even more cool stuff. So that's kind of how I look at things. That, yeah, you could get tired and turn around and go back and say you can't do it. But once you find out that you can, then anything's possible. You can you can do anything. I fully intend to go back there and do it again. Uh, maybe this summer. I'm not sure yet. The snow's going to melt enough, but uh, we'll, we'll see. I hate to give up on things.
0: Well, we want to talk about that. Hi, Sierra attempt right after the break you're listening to an organic conversation four wheel bob a new film that is making its round through film festivals throughout the country a true tale of strength courage and wisdom if you haven't seen it yet it's a must see fourwheelbobfilm.com the website and we're speaking with bob coomer the character of the film and tal sklut the director of four wheel bob and tal before we break i do want to commend you on I really love the sensitivity of the film the, the there's an Irish themed music rolling hills was that clear for you that flow that with the wheelchair again it's it's not as possible as if you were hiking on your with your legs but there is a, a certain beauty and sensitivity to it was that clear when you when you met Bob right away or did that develop throughout the filmmaking
1: uh, thanks so much for saying that and noticing that. You know, I think that developed through the story. The um, the actual attempt on um, the Kearsarge Mountain, that didn't come up until a few years into filming. We actually worked together on this film for five years. So that came up um, a little later. But I, I did know that I wanted the audience to experience this journey in a very intimate way. Rather than um, a lot of talking head uh, narration, I wanted I wanted us to be with him and uh, as much as possible experience every moment of his journey, uh, almost as if you're right beside him. In in editing, uh, my co-editor Stephen Bagel and I had many discussions about just how much to show of the actual process of climbing uh, up in the Sierras and balance that. With the rest of Bob's life, uh, of, which is very rich in itself, there was this interesting discussion of, of trying to keep a poetic quality to it, and uh, and rather than you know explaining it didactically, and we were also incredibly lucky to have a wonderful composer. You mentioned the Irish music, Barry Phillips created an all acoustic instrumental soundtrack, and that was something that I knew I wanted from the very beginning. I somehow felt that real instruments rather than synthesized would, would create the mood and, and capture the experience that Bob went through. And uh, Barry managed to get some top-notch, really some of the best uh, Celtic and bluegrass players in their field um, to play on, on the soundtrack. So, I'm incredibly grateful for that.
0: Yes, and you succeeded on all those goals. That's Four Wheel Bob, a true tale of strength, courage, and wisdom. Fourwheelbobfilm.com, the website. We're speaking with Tall Skloot, the director, and Bob Coomer. Please stay on the line, gentlemen. We'll take a quick break to honor our underwriters, but we'll be right back with more, and then we want to talk about Kersaj Path, or Path, rather, the attempt to... Climb one of the diff- most difficult high sierra mountains with a wheelchair. This is an organic conversation, and I'm Helge Helberg. This show is brought to you by Equal Exchange, a worker owned cooperative that ensures your food is environmentally sound and socially just. Equal Exchange has been creating big change for small farmers for over 30 years by offering certified organic and fair trade coffee tea, chocolate, bananas and avocados. More on Equal Exchange at EqualExchange.coop that's EqualExchange.coop and by Utterly offering beautiful and fun clothing for boys and girls that is made entirely from the unused fabric of prominent apparel manufacturers. Each garment reduces our eco footprint by preventing this fabric from reaching the waste stream. Adelie, making sustainability fashionable and fashion sustainable. For more information, adelie.co. That's U-T-T-E-R-L-Y dot C-O. And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. A new film, Four Wheel Bob. It is a true tale of strength, courage, and wisdom. And we're speaking with the director and the lifelong outdoors man and main character today, Bob Coomber and Tall Skloot. Bob, when did the idea of hiking one of the most difficult mountain terrains, the Kurosaw Path, come into into your focus when did you think you know all the the amazing fourteen thousand feet mountains that i've already attempted uh, it's not quite enough i'm going to do that one what 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 about that pass that that drew you in
2: you know and i'll, I'll say this that i believe it to this day that it's still something that i can do there aren't a lot of steps like several passes in this year so you have steps or sheer drops of more than five or six feet you know when you rock Things that might get in the way, obstacles. Um, This has probably the fewest obstacles to any Trans Sierra crossing. And a friend of mine who's a fireman here in uh, Livermore uh, is also an ultra runner. And he ran it for me uh, the first trip I went up and took pictures of it. And we sat down and discussed about where we could make some time and where, you know, and then once we make it to the top, how difficult it will be to get across boulder fields. But once we get across the top, we're clear sailing all the way down uh, to King's Canyon. So uh, that's been the goal. Once I achieved the path there. But I I guess we chose Kearsarge, or I chose Kearsarge, because I knew I wasn't going to be able to go overseas and try some tall mountains in other countries, and Kilimanjaro came to mind first. It just wasn't going to work out for me financially. So let's stay close to home. There's plenty of stuff to do in the Sierra what can I do to have some fun out there and uh, maybe learn a little bit from an experience like this. And Kearsarge seemed to be something that was was doable. You know, as I said, I still believe that to this day.
0: Tal, when you heard about that goal, and you were, what, two, three years into the filmmaking, Uh, how did the story develop from there? Like, was it all of a sudden because the story was complete the way it was, right? He was a man who had overcome, in a way, the limits of a wheelchair, as far as we understand as a society today, who does who does pass that, that or hiking trails that many people who are not in a wheelchair find strenuous or challenging or couldn't even do. Uh, and yet, now there's this, all of a sudden, this major goal of one of, you know, the the hardest passes you can you can attempt really crossing the High Sierra in a wheelchair and you touched on that Bob before we are talking out of the wheelchair on the ground pulling your wheelchair with ropes over obstacles balancing incredibly difficult terrain um, this is not even not paved this is also not a fire road these are wild trails so for you Tall when you heard that what what happened as a for you as a filmmaker.
1: Well, of course, that's every filmmaker's dream. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we had a wonderful story, but uh, when Bob mentioned this, pretty much out of the blue, I want to try and cross the Sierras um, and do a crossing that had never been attempted or done by a wheelchair. I thought, my gosh, we have an amazing story arc now. Uh, I was very grateful that uh, he wanted to do this and um, that he was generous enough to let me follow him after, you know, I've already followed him. I had already followed him for years and uh, bugged him to let me follow him on trail. So it was a wonderful opportunity. Um, and indeed as as a filmmaker and as a human being, it was an amazing experience to, to watch him inch by inch on this journey. When you think that uh, an able-bodied person can get up to the Kearsarge peak and maybe, Three hours, four hours, it's really just a, a difficult day hike. But for Bob, it's a, a multi, multi day event, just fascinating to watch. I think th- the hardest part for me as a filmmaker and our, and our team, perhaps, uh, we had a number of uh, cameramen up there, was to understand as much as we wanted that Bob really didn't need or want our help. Um, when you see the film, you'll see there are times where Bob is truly pushing his limits, both physically and psychologically, I think. And it was hard, you know, from an ethical side, not not to want to step in, not to want to help. But I think we came to realize early on, and it it was helpful to be with Bob for a few years before this journey to understand this, that this really was his challenge and his attempt at crossing a giant peak um, and his personal journey and, so we just have to really respect that and uh, observe it, document it, as it were.
0: Yeah, I understand exactly what you're saying. When I said uh, you know I wanted to push Bob up, knowing exactly as a as a viewer, that was the whole point. That I don't. And so, uh, to surrender my care for him with this bigger goal of him succeeding on his own it's incredibly hard it's an it's an experience i've not had in watching any other documentary as far as i possibly remember that you were able to crystallize it maybe it lies in the very story that we we are good people we do want to help and yet in this case helping was to be strong enough to not help and it's an it's an odd experience to to watch that
1: yes thank you very much thank you and you know i just want to mention that While you see, when you watch the film, when you see Bob climbing, and uh, some of my favorite moments are, are people would stop and talk with pretty much everyone on the trail wanted to stop and have conversations with Bob, which was great. There's a lot of that in the film. But we actually had a crew. We had two camera people. We had a drone that was filming. We had a GoPro. We had a still photographer with us. So. There was this interesting, uh, from a filmic standpoint, ballet going on mm-hmm. behind the scenes to <laughs> stay out of Bob's way and stay out of each other's way and, and uh, to capture those moments up on Kearsarge.
0: So, you as a filmmaker, you've done, what, 20 or so documentaries? You're a very accomplished director. And yet, I, I don't know, um, I got a sense that this film reached into an area that you had never confronted before, that this somehow was special. The slowness of the subject uh, or the topic itself that you can't help. Uh, How does it rank in your experiences as a filmmaker?
1: Yes, this was certainly probably the most, if not one of the most special projects I've worked on. Personally, one large lesson I learned has to do with empathy. And we Mm -hmm. all, I think, struggle in this day and age to find empathy, to understand those who are perhaps disabled, uh, whether it's a physical disability, an emotional, a mental disability, and also to challenge the ways in which we perceive disability. Uh, there's Bob can speak more to this, but there's so many uh, different shades and degrees of disability. And yet somehow through through this film, I learned that no matter what the challenge is, you can push your own personal limits. whether it's just getting out of the house, if you're a Vietnam vet, uh, and getting to the corner, going out to meet friends. And it's, as you mentioned earlier, um, and I I talked to some therapists about this too in my research, is the the health benefits of getting outside, getting into community, experiencing nature are, are tremendous. And so that was a huge lesson for me and something I learned through the process of making the film.
0: Yes. Four wheel Bob, a true tale of strength, courage, and wisdom. And of course, Bob, what happened? Kersach pass. How did you prepare? How did you think you were ready? And, and then what happened?
2: Well, I spent a lot of time in the gym as I have for many years now, just because it makes everything easier. It's, you know, either have the engine of a, of a VW Beetle or you make it like a 1967 Pontiac GTO. It's just depends how hard do you want to work at it to, uh, to get yourself in the kind of shape you know you have to be in
0: and I'm I German guess. so I do take offense to the beetle analogy because they do run forever but no I get it oh, yeah. of course it's not in any area <laughs> my speed is more like that of a beetle going
2: uphill I've owned many
0: but you are uh, in top shape now I mean seeing you in the film um, w- what's your weight now and it's mostly muscle anyway
2: I'm about one seventy five right now. Yeah, I'm great. One seventy five. Okay. And I I try and keep you know <laughs> I do have a penchant for eating things that probably aren't the best thing for me, but pushing more work at it, you can exercise it off. Quite honestly. Sure. Uh,
0: so so you is you spend
2: y- blood sugar levels.
0: Yes. So you you spend time in the gym. You get as fit as you possibly could, and and then what?
2: Well, then I just go out and try trails and uh, things that were so difficult 20 years ago to go up a 300-foot section of fairly, what I consider fairly you know, shallow grades up in the local hills like that, are now no more than, an, than, they feel like flat ground. And that's the advantage of working hard to get your body in shape. But you learn over time that it isn't all about, it's all about getting in the shape that you can and just not being very quick to say that you can't do something. And I think that's a, a a big message for me when I get to speak with other people in wheelchairs or using mobility devices is that don't say you can't until you've tried. So I started trying things, <laughs> and you know you get up your first 14,000 foot mountain. Check. You go over to Kearsarge Pass or try to get there. And I had uh, I had a problem with the insulin pump the first time we went up. We had, had to turn around before we went a mile even. Uh, I had a Finally, it got to a point on the trail where we, it was just boulders strewn everywhere. And I tried my best to get over them, but my hands were blistered up. And I'm not sure that I wanted to take a chance of the hands getting infected when you're 10 or 11 miles away from the trailhead in either direction. So that was when I made the decision to turn back around. And I, I wanted to throw this in based on your last question, Tal, is that Tal made this so easy so easy to work with I've worked with t v crews from various networks you know on local projects, and they were just so exacting and so you know do this over again do no, nothing like that ever happened we would just have conversations on the trail as we're walking along and he's picking up snippets of of film and it was it it just was it, it's the simplest thing in the world for me so uh Thanks, and, without without his um uh,
0: and it shows. It's really it's you are witnessing uh, your true attempt. You're you're a bystander, you know, you're part of it in a way. You're part of the team of cheering you on. Uh, but it's clearly your quest. So what happened on the second attempt on Kirsach Path? I'm sure our listeners are dying to know if you made it. Well, you should wait for the film. Is that
1: what you say at Yeah, you gotta watch the film. Wait for the film, yeah.
2: But we'll, we'll keep I, yeah, you at the suspense. It isn't over yet. But I had to turn back down that second time after my hands were getting blistered, and I was uh, not prepared for the boulder field that would be, yes. oh, I'm not sure, 200, 300 yards of trail that was too narrow to push the chair along, and I would have had to go over them. And I got just a few boulders in before I realized this is this is not going to happen. This is not the time. So, there again, it's a learning experience. You prepare for the next time. Uh, And there will be a next
0: time. That's why the title is A True Tale of Strength, Courage, and Wisdom because what happens then is maybe the most important message of all for me. It kind of starts with courage and strength and luckily, because it's not about you making it over that pass really, that's really the gift of the movie for me that allows the film to move from, from incredible courage and strength to wisdom because when you are are interviewed in the after breaking up that attempt you have found some maybe it was not new but it is something that was not shared in the film before a wisdom about life and and your your inner peace that's just super valuable can you share that with us
2: well thank you and i and i don't remember specifically what it is you're referring to but i can tell you generally because it sticks with me all the time that there's a positive Every outcome is a positive outcome when you try something like this, even if you, you know, there's no failure. You, I didn't fail to, to go over Kearsarge fast. That's I don't consider it a failure. I consider it a learning experience from which I can take a lot and go back next time and get it, maybe get it done. Maybe not. I don't know. But I won't know until I go out there and do it again. So you have to just take everything along and, and not consider that which you cannot do but that you tried. That you gave everything you had. And I think that was apparent from some of the footage in there because I was make tired watching it when you we were, you know, I, I didn't want to go out there. And at the end of the night, I was, thought I was going to have to go set up my tent and go up the hill again the, the next day. But uh, you, you just, I look so forward to being outside. And you gain so much from being out there, getting your hands dirty, as I tell kids when I speak to them in schools. You've got to get your hands dirty and get out there and touch things and see things and smell things and and uh, know that you aren't going to get attacked by wild marmots in the middle of the night out there somewhere. It just it doesn't work that way. There's a harmony and a balance that you can reach even when you're just exhausting yourself physically, uh, and it just goes, it goes a long way in my everyday life down here.
0: So, how has your path of being in a wheelchair and exploring nature, regardless? changed the part that Tall was just touching on, your understanding of being disabled, of disability?
2: You do take a lot away from that, because you realize uh, after a, just a few short feet in the chair that it's going to be a lot harder than if you were hopping over them, as I used to do many years ago before I was in the chair, just bounding over rocks and charging uphill over a fairly shallow grade up there, and and, uh, and you realize you have there's a fork in the road, There's a, there are choices you have to make, whether you want to live the way you want to live, or are you willing to concede so much that your life has less meaning and less value, because you're you're giving up on things that you love doing. So I just, uh, I got to the point where I just wasn't going to give in to that anymore. That wasn't part of the equation, to give in to the disability. Let's see what I could do rather than concede what I cannot. And that's, that's probably what I'm all about more than anything.
0: Beautiful. Thank you, Bob. That's Bob Coomber, tall as the director, the filmmaker, tall, skloot. Tall, what's, what's your takeaway message here for you, and where can people watch the film?
1: Well, gosh, Bob said it so well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hard to improve on that. I do think I'm very pleased that that message that uh, you perceived and Bob mentioned comes across in the film, and hopefully uh, audiences as they watch it will will question themselves um, in every aspect of their life, um, what limitations they see that they can push through, what challenges they haven't faced that they could face. And I think Bob, more than anything, uh, sets an example for that. Um, and when we think of disability being a limitation, Indeed, here we see not the case. And so my hope is that as people watch the film, they can think about their own lives. The film is is, is rolling out, played in festivals, and I'm delighted to say mountain film festivals in Europe. Uh, So it's having an audience for the mountain community as well. We're currently in negotiation with uh, PBS for a local and national broadcast. That will probably be the best place to see it for number four, Wheel Bob
0: film.com great tal screwed the director of four wheel bob and yes the website four as a number 4 four wheel bob film.com thank you both so much and i know your work what i'm hearing between the lines will continue in one way or another um there's another day to attempt kisatch Uh, pass, and we will all be witnessing, at least in our hearts and souls. Thank you so much for the inspiration.
2: Thank you so much. much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you. Take good care. See you out there. I'm Helge Hellberg, and this is an organic conversation. From hiking the High Sierra in a wheelchair to planting fruits and vegetables in the lowlands of California, here's the update from the produce doc what's available, how to pick it, how to choose it, how to store it, and what to do with it. Here is what's in season. And as every week, we're speaking with Earl's Organic, not in this case with Earl Herrick, but with one of his expert buyers, Rodrigo, is back on the show. Rodrigo, do we have you? Hi, Helge. (laughs) I'm here. Hi. Thank you so much for making time. Uh, We are so excited. It's May, and it looks like every other day, every week for sure, there are several new items. What's your focus today?
3: I would like to talk about tropical fruit.
0: Oh, tropicals. I love tropicals. Um what when you say tropicals, what do you what do you have in mind?
3: Pineapples, mangoes, you know, mangoes are part of the tropical world, papayas, and coconuts too. And, uh, you know, sometimes we also put there uh the cherimoyas, uh, since it is a subtropical but it you know, it can be considered tropical fruit as well.
0: Yes, and cherimoyas, they look like little dragon eggs with all those bumps. Um, Many people may have never had one. They are also grown domestically at this point, right? Tropical means only they don't require chill hours, and it doesn't mean necessarily that they're grown only in the tropics. Don't we have relatively local mango production, for example?
3: We do. Uh, we do in uh, uh, California and Florida. We have a uh, mango production, mm-hmm. and in the case of the cherimoyas, uh San Diego County. It's uh, you know it's where we find most of the uh, of the cherimoya production. San Diego,
0: huh? Interesting. In, yeah,
3: San, San Diego County. I can tell you because I'm being Chilean. I'm Chilean. I uh, grew up uh, eating moyas. They oh, are I'm so uh, jealous. Uh,
0: <laughs> it's my favorite yeah. tropical fruit. Uh, but you know, amazing. let me tell you
3: these. They're not any cheaper in Chile.
0: Oh, really? Yeah, that's a problem. I mean, cherimoyas is not a fruit you want to eat on an ongoing basis, you know, eight, nine, ten dollars a pound It's again it looks like a coconut size dragon egg with all those bumps and yet I do need to say it is my absolute favorite flavor kind of un- indescribable right it's this k- kind of yummy tropical chewing gum white flesh big seeds that you can just spit out it's an amazing fruit but yes very costly very expensive.
3: It's absolutely delicious sometimes I see it like a combination of all the tropical flavors together uh-huh, yes. and it has a lot of things, you know, has many things against its massification, you know, it's a a low yield, it's very difficult to grow, it's very sensitive, it's very fragile, it has a very thin skin, and it has lots of seeds. Yes. So it's more (laughs) like an adventure, it's a a treasure, you know, it's trying to stay away from the masses. And let me tell you, you know, there's a, 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 I, I agree with you, it's a fantastic piece of fruit, but I would like to quote Mark Twain who once called the cherimoya the most delicious fruit known to men.
0: Oh, really? Oh, great. Um, I'm not alone thinking that. And um, I like them slightly on the firmer side. If they have a little bit give like an, an almost ripe avocado, I think they're, they're best. And then you just scoop them out with a spoon and you can spit out these big seeds. If people have never had them, they're often recommended to be eaten very ripe, like almost soft. And I, I do think they start f- um, fermenting fairly quickly. What's your take on that?
3: Yeah, I agree. And uh, in this case, you know, the, I got to tell you that, Adam, the other side of the spectrum, I like my, my, my Cherry Moyas to be very ripe. I think that's when they they achieve uh, uh, almost all the flavor, when they're, they're, they're not pretty on the outside, you know, they, start, yeah. uh, they show this oxidation and they are dark. The green turns into a black um, skin. Uh, that's uh, that's that's
0: my favorite cherimoya. <laughs> Great. Well, we'll leave it up to the consumer. But if you never had one, just try one. You 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 must have a cherimoya in this life, just to see if you like it as much as Mark Twain or Helga or <laughs> Rodrigo. Rodrigo, when it comes to papaya. It's one of those fruits that I love eating but I have I have just have no idea even what a perfect ripe papaya would look like from the outside or how to determine that. What do you go by when we talk about papayas?
3: In organic production, it's not easy to find the ripe right variety. So, we have the sunrise papaya that is small. Uh, there's a Hawaiian variety that is very very limited, almost non-existent inorganic. And then there's the Marlboro Papaya which is this big, big variety grown in Mexico. But we have narrowed our papaya uh, variety to the Formosa Papaya which, you know, is a variety that has I would say the best of both worlds. Uh-huh. It's bigger than a sunrise it's very sweet and it has a very uh, extended shelf life.
0: Nice. And how do you pick that one?
3: I would go for something that is uh, kind of like, you know, partially green and partially orange, oh. uh, not completely orange. If you go to a fruit that is all orange in this formosa, it might be too ripe. It might be too late.
0: And they have a lot of give then too, right? If you can basically almost squeeze it together with your thumb, it's too ripe, right?
3: If you, if you exactly, if you go to the point with a point where it has that give, it's it's already too late. Something that some uh, um, growers have been doing. In their PLU sticker, they use a big PLU sticker with a uh, a, a color that tells you what is the, you know, optimal oh, range.
0: Oh, perfect. Huh.
3: So it's, it's, it's a gradual, you know, change in color from uh, green to orange. And it clearly shows you what is the optimal optimal uh, uh, ripening stage. That's been, you know, it's been very, it's been proven to be very helpful because it's a, it's a relatively new variety. Uh, it's not the most, you know, uh, common variety. Mm-hmm. But it's so much better than anything that we uh, used to have that we're seeing a lot of uh, customers more and more interested in this Formosa Papaya.
0: So you don't go by scent or anything, really. If it, if it has green and yellow, and if it's if it meets that little sticker with the ripeness, that's really the way to go.
3: That, that's exactly how it is.
0: Great. And then lastly, which is a really expensive item, too, and same thing, people love pineapple, and yet... Uh, from peeling the leaves, which you already told me last year, I believe that that's not a good way of determining. actually, in fact, it's the opposite. If they come out, it might be too dry already. I believe you said weight is really the best way of of going by about it, right? What do you how do you do that?
3: Absolutely. So some, any pineapple that is heavy for its weight is going to be um, you know most likely to be sweeter. Now remember, pineapples don't ripen. They are in the group of fruit that doesn't ripen after being harvested, like um, apples or grapes. Uh, the way they are when they're harvested, that's what's going to be. They're mm-hmm. not going to get any sweeter. So just uh, look for a pineapple that doesn't show any signs of mold, that is not too soft. And uh, don't look for the, uh, for the yellow color because organic pineapples remain green even when they're sweet and fully ripe. Uh It's very unique to the organic production of pineapples because in the conventional production, many times they they spray ethylene in the field just to artificially change color from green to yellow, but that doesn't have anything to do with the the
0: sweet. <laughs> that's so funny. Wow, that's good to know. So you basically go through all the um, pineapple and you kind of picture, even if they have slightly different sizes, is this for its size the heaviest? Because that means it has the most juice and juice means sugar and that means ripeness. Is that right? That is correct. That's exactly right. Nice. What do you do with tropicals? We're almost out of time, but I do want to. When people get them home, and let's say they have the perfect one, how long do they last on the counter? And do you ever put them in the fridge?
3: Um, you can put them in the fridge once if they're ripe. They're going to be. They're going to be very. They're going to preserve very well in the in the in your refrigerator. Um, in the case of pineapples, I like to cut them immediately and then put the cubes uh, of pineapples uh-huh. in, a, in a bowl and then put it in my refrigerator. So I, I have a perfectly ripe pineapple that is uh, very, you know, at the perfect temperature uh, now that the weather is warmer. Um, it's very refreshing.
0: Sure. Um, so this would be the time to enjoy a cherimoya, papaya, mango, of course, or pineapple. pineapple. Wonderful. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much, Rodrigo. Really appreciate your time and your expertise and we hope people try those items right now, and we'll have you back soon.
3: Thank you so much.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, Rodrigo. Take care. Bye. Bye. And that was a beautiful hour of an organic conversation, a new documentary, Four Wheel Bob, A True Tale of Strength, Courage, and Wisdom, and the update from the San Francisco Produce Doc, really as a consumer segment of how to save money choosing the right produce right now. And that was this week's edition of An Organic Conversation. Thank you so much for listening. A big thank you also to our associate producer, Kristen Ponger. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to anorganicconversation.com or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play so you'll never miss an episode. And for more information, health tips, recipes and your daily dose of inspiration, find us on Facebook and Instagram at An Organic Conversation, and on Twitter at Talk Organic. I'm Helge Helberg, and we'll be back with another great episode right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then.